Hi, you're listening to Unknown History and I'm your host, Giles Milton. Unknown History will be back with another season this summer based on my new book, Checkmate in Berlin. But today, I have something special to share with you. It's an exclusive segment from a new history audiobook I think you'll enjoy. The Long Grey Line by Rick Atkinson tells a 25-year saga of the West Point Academy class of 1966. Originally published in print in 1989, it follows three classmates all through their lives, from their boisterous cadet years to the fires of Vietnam to the hard peace and internal struggles that followed the war. And it's now available as unabridged audio for the first time. Keep listening for an exclusive segment from the audiobook. And if you like what you hear, you can buy The Long Grey Line now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Even on the Sabbath dawn, Penn Station was a busy place. Red caps hurried across the concourse on crepe soles, pushing carts piled high with luggage. Vendors began to unshutter their kiosks, and the garble of arrivals and departures droned from the public address system. Although it was a gray beginning to what would be a gray day, the huge waiting room was awash with a hazy luminance. Light seeped through the windows high overhead and filtered down through the intricate ironwork. Chandeliers, each with eight yellow globes, dangled from the girders. This was the year before the station, which had been modeled on the baths of Caracalla, would be raised for a new Madison Square garden and a monstrously ugly depot. Now, though, the building was magnificent, with its arches and trusses and vaulting space as vast as the nave of St. Peter's. Beneath the large sign proclaiming incoming trains, five young men climbed the stairs from the grimy warren of tracks below. Each carried a small bag containing a shaving kit, a change of clothes, and, as instructed, one pair of black, low-quarter, plain-toe shoes. They had boarded the train in Newport News and traveled north, through the pine forests of southern Virginia, through darkened Washington and Baltimore. Without much success, they had tried to nap as the train rocked through Maryland and the slumbering villages of southern New Jersey, silent except for the hysterical dinging of crossing gates. Now, a bit rumpled but excited by their arrival in Manhattan, the five chattered like schoolboys set loose on a great adventure. They walked quickly across the waiting room toward 8th Avenue. In front of a newsstand, the day's edition of the New York Times had just arrived in a thick bundle. Under the paper's name and the date, July 1st, 1962, the front page offered a remarkable snapshot of an America that was about to vanish and the America that was about to replace it. Leaders of U.S. and Mexico hail new era of amity, the lead story proclaimed. A large photo showed the president ignoring his Secret Service agents to grasp the hand of a boy on his father's shoulders in Mexico City as a huge crowd, more than a million, roared, Viva Kennedy! On the opposite side of the page, the Times reported that the federal deficit topped $7 billion as fiscal 1962 ended, with the virtual certainty of another deficit in the new fiscal year. Other articles reported that former President Eisenhower, speaking from his Gettysburg farm, had declared that Republicans represented the party of business and were proud of the label. 
Dodger southpaw Sandy Koufax had notched 13 strikeouts in pitching a no-hitter against the Mets. In an article from Detroit, 63 autos to accent styling over thrift, noted that carmakers were about to offer more chrome, automobiles 2 to 7 inches longer than the previous year's models, and 90 varieties of bucket seats. The Times also documented developments in Algerian politics, Saskatchewan healthcare, and a call by Nikita Khrushchev for the Soviet people to diversify their diets by eating more cornflakes. Americans and Englishmen, Khrushchev observed, are masters of preparing corn in the form of flakes. The missile gap had been succeeded by the cereal gap. Tucked into the lower right-hand corner of page one were two nettlesome articles with an exotic dateline, Saigon. The first reported that the South Vietnamese government charged today that new weapons from communist China had been given to communist guerrillas. It demanded action against these flagrant violations of the Geneva Agreement. The second article said that a massive combined operation against hardcore communist guerrillas along the Cambodian border has resulted in the discovery of two training camps for insurgents and the capture of enemy documents. A related story on page 22 reported that the most avidly read book in Saigon is Bend with the Wind, a breezy tract put out by the United States Embassy for the big American colony here. The book contained advice on riots, invasions, coups, typhoons, and earthquakes. It also explained a sequence of alerts known as conditions white, gray, and yellow. In the event of condition red, the most serious gradation, Americans were to remain calm and prepare for evacuation. The five young men stepped onto 8th Avenue. The overcast sky threatened drizzle. New York City looked hard and scruffy, as though it too had been shortchanged on sleep. They turned north and walked six blocks to the West Side bus terminal. A ticket agent directed them to the proper bus, whose sign above the windshield advised in block capitals, West Point. They climbed aboard. All five were the sons of army officers stationed at Fort Monroe, a picturesque antebellum fortress on the Chesapeake Bay where Jefferson Davis had been imprisoned after the Civil War. All five were also good students, model citizens, and active in extracurricular activities. One was an outstanding marksman, another a champion middleweight boxer. The youngest of the group was still six months shy of his 18th birthday. Just under five feet, ten inches tall, he had his mother's blue eyes, high forehead, and fair hair. He laughed often, with an abrupt, high-pitched giggle that was easy to pick out in a crowded room. Although never a gifted athlete, he kept himself in good shape. His name was John Parsons Wheeler III, and he was nervous. As the bus worked its way north through Manhattan, Jack Wheeler couldn't help wondering whether he was making a mistake. He had agonized over where to go to college. The decision seemed so momentous that he had avoided making it for weeks after the arrival of the Academy's acceptance letter. Admission Form 5.413, dated 24 April, 1962, which had declared him fully qualified and entitled to admission. At Hampton High School, he had been editor of the yearbook and president of the Spanish club. 
His classmates considered him warm, erudite, and serious. The word among the girls at Hampton High was that if you planned to go out with Jack Wheeler, you had better be smart. He'd even lectured one of them on the constellations, pointing out the Dippers and the North Star. During his senior year, his classmates had voted him most likely to succeed. Much of Jack's ambivalence was caused by another letter he had received. This one dated April 16, 1962, and embossed with the Latin phrase, Lux et Veritas. Yale University takes pleasure in advising John Parsons Wheeler III that he has been approved for admission to the freshman class entering in September 1962. Unlike West Point's free education, four years at Yale were very expensive. But Jack had won a National Merit Scholarship to cover the cost. The idea of going to New Haven to study literature and live like a normal college student had enormous appeal. There was no doubt about where his mother, Janet, wanted him to go. She nudged him persistently toward Yale, convinced that her elder son needed a place that would give his mind free reign. Just as persistently, his father nudged him toward West Point, his own alma mater. He very much wanted his son to be a military man. The Wheelers hailed from a long line of soldiers, traceable to at least the 17th century. But when young Jack took the physical examination for the academy, Army doctors disqualified him because of a punctured eardrum. Not to be denied, his father had taken him to an Air Force doctor who was accustomed to seeing shattered ears in his pilots. Mighty fine ears your boy has, Colonel, the doctor said cheerfully, before certifying the young man as physically sound for the academy. As Colonel Wheeler pressed his campaign, Jack had to admit that West Point felt comfortable, like the succession of Army posts he was used to. Fort Riley, Fort Knox, Fort Hood, Fort Monroe. The academy would almost be like home. When he had finally made up his mind, Jack came down to dinner one evening, pulled up to the table, and announced, I've decided where I'm going to go. He paused dramatically before adding, West Point. Janet finished her meal and excused herself. She got into the car and drove aimlessly around the post, trying to calm down. Without even bothering to check the marquee, she parked next to the theater, bought a ticket, and walked inside. The most desirable woman in town and the easiest to find, the poster next to the box office proclaimed. Just call Butterfield 8. By the time the heroine, played by Elizabeth Taylor, perished in an automobile wreck, Janet had recaptured her composure. She drove home and congratulated her son. The bus rumbled across the George Washington Bridge and north onto Highway 9 West, following the Western Palisades. Past Upper Nyack, the land seemed to muscle up, inclining slightly as the engine whined through a shift of gears. Yes, West Point was a known quantity, more predictable than the alien civilian world of New Haven. The academy also offered an engineering education, which seemed more pragmatic to Jack than the humanities. In the aftermath of Sputnik, he thought, his generation had an obligation to keep America preeminent in the sciences and technology. That polished steel beach ball, beeping its eerie A-flat taunt as it orbited the Earth, had triggered a bout of American self-reproach several years earlier. 
The Soviets had humiliated the United States, and the implication was that the rising generation would have to set things right. Jack took that mission seriously, and West Point seemed a good place to accept the challenge. Colonel Wheeler had not been around to see his firstborn off to West Point. Once again, duty had taken him from home, this time to prepare for command of a tank battalion at Fort Riley, Kansas. Big Jack's frequent absences stretched the emotional distance that Jack felt. The more his father was away, the more Jack craved his admiration and respect. He understood, perhaps intuitively rather than intellectually, that attending West Point was the surest way to please Big Jack. With a few hours to kill before the train left for New York, Jack had paced restlessly through the house at Fort Monroe. Come on, his mother said, sensing that he needed to get out. Let's go have dinner at the officer's club. While they were eating, a general stopped by the table to chat for a moment. When he learned that Jack was leaving that night for the academy, the general put a hand on his shoulder and said gently, He's too young. Boys shouldn't leave for soldiering so young. Finally, the moment came, and Janet drove her son to the Newport News station. It was a beautiful evening, the sky jammed with stars. At home in Laredo, Texas, during World War II, she had fallen into the habit of staring at the heavens, wondering whether her husband was alive or dead on some European battlefield. Now, hugging her son on the platform, she looked up again and silently prayed to her ancestors, please, please attend him. His eyes flooded with tears. Dry-eyed herself, she fought an impulse to hop on the train with him. With a last hug, she whispered, go find your star, Jack. And then he was gone. Now, 90 minutes after leaving New York, the bus rolled into the village of Highland Falls, drowsy with summer and Sunday. Diners and pubs lined the main street, where five-and-dime stores peddled go-army pennants and ceramic figurines of cadets with little bow mouths and ruddy cheeks. Ahead lay the academy's main entrance, Thayer Gate. The sheaf of official documents Jack had received included a form letter with a veiled warning from the adjutant general. You are to be congratulated on this opportunity for admission to the military academy, for it comes only to a select few of America's youth. Now is the time for you to reconsider your decision to become a member of the Corps of Cadets. You should reassess your ambitions most conscientiously in light of the mission of the academy, which is the training of young men for careers as officers in the regular army of the United States. Without strong determination to achieve such a career, many of the demands of cadet life will be irksome and difficult. With a squeal of brakes, the bus pulled up to the hotel there. The young men stood up, yawning and stretching as they shuffled toward the door. Jack grabbed his bag and stepped onto the pavement, his full sense of high purpose tinged with a touch of dread. The Thayer was an imposing brick hostel perched on a knoll above the Hudson. Its roof, like that of a castle, was ringed with battlements, and the lobby was often filled with old soldiers in various stages of fading away. The grand dining room featured octagonal pillars with gilded bas-relief vines and tendrils that climbed toward the oak-beamed ceiling. 
Like all formal dining rooms on army posts, this one smacked of the old army. Big steaks and blue cheese and under-tipping alcoholics. But little imagination was required in the soft lighting to see a MacArthur in the far corner, strands of hair combed vainly over his pate, or an Eisenhower with his eyebrow cocked, hanging fire with his cutlery as he listened to an old friend from 15, the famous class that stars fell on. Now, hundreds of young men, all as nervous as Jack, crowded the there. Most had never seen the academy. A few had never been on a military post. Many, those with their hands still clamped over their wallets, had just come through New York for the first time. Nearly two-thirds were the sons of military fathers, and they came as close to constituting an American warrior caste as the nation would allow. Two-thirds also were Protestants. Only one percent were Jewish. Compared with other new college freshmen with whom they had been surveyed, the new cadets smoked less, prayed more, cribbed less, napped more. Few were from either very rich or very poor homes. Half, in fact, came from families with annual incomes of $10,000 to $15,000. They inclined to achievement and overachievement. Most had been varsity athletes, student government or class officers, and members of the National Honor Society. The army brats, like Jack, had grown up as nomads, moving an average of eight or ten times in their young lives. The upbringing encouraged a strange concoction of traits that made them cosmopolitan and self-reliant, yet rootless and somewhat insulated from the larger civilian world. All of them were also sons of the 1950s, had they been asked, they collectively could have belted out the theme songs to the Mickey Mouse Club or the Davy Crockett Show, born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. They had been nurtured on Wagon Train and Wyatt Earp and knew that DDT meant drop dead twice. Most wore butch haircuts or flat tops, and a few rebels had experimented by rolling their T-shirts above their biceps with cigarette packs secured in the sleeve. They universally admired John Glenn, another military man, whose three orbits earlier that year had earned him fame and glory. They agreed with Pablo Picasso, who had said of the smiling Marine from New Concord, Ohio, I am as proud of him as if he were my brother. Finally, they were largely ignorant of many things, including women, failure, and evil. Jack spied a familiar face in the crowd, a friendly, reassuring one. Jeff Rogers, whose father and uncle were both West Pointers, had graduated from Hampton High in 1961 and enlisted in the Army. He had spent the past year at the Military Academy Prep School in Virginia, brushing up his math skills and memorizing 30 new words a week. As little boys at Fort Riley, Jack and Jeff had played in the same sandbox. Their fathers had both been brown-boot cavalrymen who made the necessary transition to tanks during World War II. Come on, Jeff said, after pumping Jack's hand. Let's go look around. They strolled down to the river and past the old train station, a pretty little gingerbread building with gables and a steep slate roof. Jack saw sailboats tied up nearby. That was also reassuring. At Fort Monroe, the Wheelers lived in a three-bedroom house near the seawall, where they were lulled by the slap of Chesapeake waves on the stones. 
The commanding general occasionally let the family borrow his boat, and Jack had learned to sail on the bay. The Hudson, he thought, with its tides, current, and barge traffic, would provide a stiff challenge to his seamanship. The river was also beautiful. During the Ice Age, a mile-thick tongue of glacial ice had pushed through here, notching a gap in the steep highlands. To the south, Jack and Jeff could see where the gorge cut between Bear Mountain on the west bank and Anthony's Nose on the east. To the north, the river sliced through another pass bracketed by Storm King Mountain and Breakneck Ridge. Henry Hudson and his sullen crew had threaded this strait aboard the 80-ton Half Moon on September 14, 1609, futilely searching for passage to the Western Ocean. Later that century, Captain Kidd and other pirates had infested the river. Even now, after more than 300 years of encroaching civilization, the gorge still held a pristine New World charm. Once again, that was The Long Grey Line by Rick Atkinson. I hope you liked it. You can buy The Long Grey Line now using the link in the show notes or wherever books or audiobooks are sold.